First off, we're going to start out in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I'm going to read this verse, and this is going to kind of get us into as we talk about loving God more, delighting in God more. Okay? Verse 5 through 9 of Deuteronomy 6. It says this. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall take of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Moses pouring out this intentional, purposeful love of God that is a command that is, should be overflowing and directing the way that we live, act, teach, and, and do, and walk, and sit, and all these different things. So he's calling them to love God more. And so this morning, as we kind of get into that, I want to cover two things. The first thing we're going to talk about is why we need more of God. And then the second thing will be how we love God more. How we take in more of who God is and delight in who He is. Because I don't, I don't believe in showing a problem without showing a solution. And it's not going to be earth-shattering things. But I pray this morning that you would hear it and that you would receive it. And that you would not walk out of this place this morning as if you heard nothing. And so that's my prayer for us. So the first thing that we're talking about is why do we need more of God? Because I think that's very important for us to know. Why should we delight more in God? Or why do we need more of God? And the first thing that I want to talk about under that is that He is worthy of it. He is worthy of my love. He is worthy of my delight. And He is worthy of my obedience. Colossians 1.18, it says, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in Everything, church, in everything. I, I, I made that word all capitals just so that I would say it like that. In everything, he might be preeminent. That he might be the best. That he might be the most elevated. That he might be the most important. In everything, church, that he would be that. John Piper said this. He said, the intensity of my treasuring communicates the worth of the treasure. Church, the more that we love and delight in God shows and reveals how worthy we think He truly is. How worthy we truly believe that He is because we have to believe who Jesus is. We have to really understand that Jesus is the Son of God and that we're not walking in here this morning just being okay with the fact that God, I mean, He's a great teacher and He said some really great things and He, was a great, he has a great uh, word of encouragement for me in my times of trouble. No, He is more than that. He is more than motivational. He is more than encouraging and He is more than just a good moral teacher. He is the Son of God. And we have to treat him and approach him in that manner. C.S. Lewis said this, and I quote C.S. Lewis a lot because it's just, he just so is in tune with who God is and what God's called us to do. This is a long quote, but I want you to hear it and listen to it. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, talking about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, 
or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him, spit at him, and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is the Son of God, and we have to approach Him and see Him in that light. Or else, like C.S. Lewis said, He's either a lunatic or the devil, or He's the Son of God. And if He's the Son of God, then that's the most important, most valuable person that ever existed in the history of humanity, and He deserves our worship. He deserves us pouring out our love and our delight in Him because He's worthy of it if He is the Son of God and did what the Bible says that He did and is who He says He is, then He is worthy of it. And when we we delight and desire God, we reveal His value. When we delight and desire God, we reveal His value, seeking Him not out of a place of duty, but of need and necessity and delight, as we'll talk about in the next part, that we need Him, that we need Him, that it's not, I'm not doing this, I'm not here this morning out of duty. Listen, if I hung out with my wife because it was out of duty, that would really belittle her, right? I said, hey, I, let's, let's go out and eat. I just feel like I should. You know, let's, let's go hang out. I just feel like that's probably what we should do. She'd probably be like, cool, thanks. <laughs> and if, for God, it's the same way. If we're here out of a place of duty, we're belittling the very treasure that we say we come here to worship. If we read our Bible out of a place of just, ugh, duty, just to say that I did, really, it's empty. The Bible talks about it like it's like a, a noisy gate, a clanging cymbal. It's, it's not love. That's not willful, delightful, cherishing, purposeful, intentional love. So not only do we need more of God and does He deserve more of us because He's worthy, but also the second thing, because He satisfies and provides. Deuteronomy 6, verses 10 through 11 says this in that same chapter. He's talking about what he's done for the children of Israel. And he says, Great and good cities you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not uh, plant. And when you eat, you are full. And are full. that That you have all these things. That, that God gave them. He says, I did these things for you. You didn't do this. The very fact that you woke up this morning, took a breath, and put on clothes is a common grace that a believer and unbeliever enjoy. Isn't that crazy when we think about the fact that God protects and provides even for unbelievers with common graces like the breath in their lungs? How much more does God want to do and provide and satisfy in the believer the one who is delighting in Him, the one who is loving Him, the one who is committed to Him, the one who is obedient to Him. He says, I want to do more abundantly for you. I want to satisfy you. I want to provide for you. I want to give you a purpose in life. That's the God that we serve. That's what He's communicating. That's why we need more because He satisfies and provides. And He has given us all and continues to give us all. He is our spiritual feeding. He feeds our spirits. Psalm 34, 8, David says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 63, 3-4, through 4, he says, Because your steadfast love is better than life. Isn't that crazy that your love, your agape, purposeful, intentional love is better than life itself? 
the breath in my lungs. Isn't that amazing that as an unbeliever, the only thing they have to celebrate in what God has done is the breath in their lungs, the life that they've given. But for us, if you're a believer here this morning, you've placed your faith and your identity in Christ, then you can celebrate that God's goodness and love is greater than even the very life that I walk in right now. And that's only in God that we can find that. And I love the Apostle's response here in John 6, uh, 68 through 69. Uh, Jesus tells him a, a multitude of people of just exodus. He's just started talking about eating flesh and drinking blood, and he's speaking in spiritual terms, and the people hear that, and they're like, whoa, I'm out. That's too much. I'm gone. So all these people leave, and the apostles and some few disciples are still there, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, what about you? What are you going to do? And I love their response here. I constantly come back to this. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That you are the Holy They said, where else would we go? They've come to a place where they understand that God is the only source, Jesus is the only source of satisfaction and provision that's worth spending time with. Where else will I go? I pray that we could be at a place in our life like these were normal people that struggled in sin, but they were at a place where they were able to say, Jesus, where else will I go? What else is there for me? Because He satisfies and provides. Our needing and wondering is reflective in our living and our worshiping. That if we're needing God and wondering for God, that should be evident in the way that we come into this place. And as we worship and as we pray and as we get into His Word, those things should be evident. And if we aren't being satisfied in Him and it is not translating into worship and devotion to Him, we have a problem. We have something that's deficient in our life. If we aren't desiring Him daily, because the Bible says that desiring Him is evidence of a believer that knows Him. If we aren't desiring to worship Him, if we aren't desiring to be devoted to Him and delight in Him and to love Him more, then there is a problem. You know, being a nurse, for some reason, I was telling my KK this the other day, I was like, I always, I don't know why, I need to stop it, but I guess it's just because of my life. I, I always lean on medical examples to just reflect eternal truths and different things, but uh, one of the things, maybe you've heard about this, maybe you've known someone who's experienced this, but uh, I, I was just thinking about the disease pica. I don't know if you know what pica is or, or what, how that looks or what it's all about, but uh, pica is a disease that presents itself mostly in children, okay, mostly in children. And what it does is it creates this craving for things it creates this craving for things that are inedible, that are non-nutritional, and that are potentially dangerous. Okay, it creates this desire for things that people do not eat. Like if you've seen this play out, it's when you see kids eating rocks and dirt and hair and toenails and things like that, right? Okay, that's what this does. This is a real thing that people are really affected by. And the majority of the reason why this happens is it is a result of a deficiency, whether it's a natural deficiency or it's a purposeful, neglected deficiency. Okay? And so what this does, because there's this deficiency, it leads them to devour and to feast on things that are not meant to be eaten, that are not nutritional, and that could potentially cause damage and be dangerous for them to take in. And so for us, if we are neglecting to feast 
on what is the very source of our spiritual satisfaction if we call ourselves a believer this morning, we will be deficient, and that deficiency will lead us to things that are dangerous, that are not meant to be enjoyed by us, and that could potentially destroy us because of this deficiency. And so what is the cure? The cure is a nutritional realignment or some type of treatment. You change your diet. Church, you change your diet. And so for us as believers, if we want to reorient ourselves to taking in more of God, being satisfied and provided for by Him, we have to change the diet of what we're feasting on to fix that deficiency. You know, a lot of you here have been in church for a really long time. That's one of the things that's really a struggle about ministering in a community like De Quincey is that people have been to churches. They've been to several different churches. They've been in church their whole life. They've done church things for a long time. But the problem is, is that all these years that they've been in church, been around church, they've become so callous and indifferent to it that they haven't matured or grown in their Christian faith to do anything beyond coming and sitting in a pew and just sucking in whatever's going on in the service. Let me slow down a little bit. <laughs> Hebrews 5.12 says this, It's for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Listen, and, and, and like this disease, specifically some of the people I've experienced that have this disease of pica, the reason that they have these cravings and they're not being provided by nutritionally is because they won't move away from milk. They won't move away from solid food. They're just drinking the milk, drinking the milk, and the milk itself doesn't have enough to satisfy or sustain them. So as Christians, if we're just resting in the basic things of the faith, and we're not looking to devour deep things and want to, to, to take in more of who God is and what He's got for us, we're going to start feasting on on the wrong things. We're going to start to love agape the world. We're going to start loving and agapeing the fleshly desires and the things that the world puts before us. 1 John 2, 15-16 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. If we feast more on what the world gives us rather than what God has revealed to us, we have a problem and we will be deficient. And we will continue to thirst for milk rather than devour the solid things that God wants to give us and do with us. There are people, there are some of you in here that have so much potential to do some really great things for the Lord, but you choose daily because of your spiritual diet to just take in what little we're able to give you here and leave here deficient throughout the rest of your week. And so the question is, and I, and I, I hope that you're evaluating yourself. This isn't meant to shame you. This is hopefully meant to spur you, but I pray that right now you're evaluating in yourself, what is my diet? What provides for me spiritually? What is fulfilling me in my life? And so what are you feasting on? Are you feasting on him? And are you feasting on him more than once a week? You know, if your only physical meal was once a week, how would you be physically? I mean, would you accomplish anything? I can tell you right now, I would be found asleep in my truck on the side of the road if I only ate one time a week. Skin and bones, weak, tired, hangry, yelling at people, right? I would not be happy. I can't go like 45 minutes without eating something. I, I can't imagine if I only feasted on one thing one time a week. 
You know, the Bible in the Old Testament, it talks about uh, whenever Moses went to Mount Sinai, it says that he went to the mountain. He went up to the mountaintop to receive the law from God. And while he was up there, they said, no one else can come up here because if you're in the presence of a holy God, you will die. It will kill you. But Moses was invited. Moses was brought in. He got to experience the glory of God. He got to get the revealed word from God, the law and all these things. And so everybody else at the foot of the mountain had to wait. What's God got to say? What's Moses going to bring to us? What's he got to say to us? And the sad thing is, what we're doing in the New Covenant, in the New Testament church, is a lot of you, a lot of us are still waiting at the bottom of the mountain. What's the pastor got to say to me this week? What's he going to tell me about this week? How's he going to fill me up this week? Listen, that is a lot of weight on me to be the only spiritual meal, and on Brother Garen, to be the only spiritual meal that you get. We've got to kill it every week. It's got to be the best meal you've ever devoured spiritually every single week. And I can promise you, we will not live up to that expectation. You will get a disappointing spiritual meal from us occasionally. Your feasting cannot just be once a week. You, like in the Old Testament, you don't have to stand at the base of the mountain anymore and wait for God to reveal something to you. The Bible tells us that He's allowed us through Jesus Christ to come to Him boldly ourselves. That you can go before a holy God. You can cry out to a holy God. You can read His revealed Word. You can pray to Him. You can worship to Him. All those things for Him to reveal what He has for you and for your family and where He wants you to go and how He wants to lead you. He has that for you. You don't have to wait for us. Because what that will lead to is it will lead to a spiritual deficiency that will lead you to things with a spiritual pica, filling, on, filling yourself and feasting on things that you are not meant to enjoy, you are not meant to feast on, not meant to be uh, energized by, and that are potentially dangerous for you, and that will not nourish your spiritual life. Spiritual hunger and deficiency leads us to lesser things and keeps us from the greater things. So the first thing is why we need more of God and why God deserves more of us. The second thing and last thing this morning is how do we do that? How do we do that? And this is where we're going to land the plane this morning. If you can turn to Mark chapter 5, Mark chapter 5 and follow along with me here this morning. This is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible, and as I was studying it this week, it just really came to life even more so and spoke to me in a very special way. But I think this story really reveals to us a great, great outline for how we take in more of God and how we give God more of ourselves. Mark chapter 5, we're going to be in verse 24. In verse 24, in the way that we Give God more, and the way that we take in more is by knowing His worth and understanding our need. Mark chapter 5, verse 24, I'm going to read it through, and we'll come back and talk about it. And a great crowd followed Him and thronged about Him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind Him in the crowd, and touched His garment. For she said, if I touch him, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman 
knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. The first thing that we must do, the first thing that we do and how we take in more of him and give him more of ourselves, is we seek him. We seek him. Verse 27 It says, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Listen, the thing about this that we have to understand with this woman, because of the Old Testament law, this woman was considered ceremonially unclean. She could not participate in any religious activities. For 12 years, she could not participate in any religious activities. Also, because of this, because of Leviticus 15, she could not get married. She could not get married. She could not participate in any religious activities. And so her social life and her religious life were in shambles because of this thing that she could not fix. She could not do anything about it. The Bible said that she literally did everything, gave everything that she could to try to cure this, and she could not. And so this also meant that anybody she touched became spiritually unclean. Because of her uncleanliness, she was not allowed to touch anyone, be around anyone. The law made her dirty. The law communicated that she was dirty. But despite that, she pushed through the crowd to get to him. She sought God. She had many excuses not to. She had a lot of reasons not to. Fear of how people would respond. Fear of how he would respond. All these things for 12 years she had been told, you can't do. You can't worship God. You can't have a a relationship with a man. You can't do any of these things. You can't, you can't, you can't. You're dirty. You're filthy. But what did she do anyway? She sought after him. Because she understand, she understood that she needed him. She put herself in a place to see him, and she understood her need. For a lot of us this morning, you're not seeking him because you don't understand your need. You don't understand your need for him. And the problem is, is because we're wealthy. Every single one of us in here are wealthy. And our wealth has become our weight. Our wealth has become our weight. And the Bible speaks about this. How the wealth that we have, as much or as little as it is for a country like we live in, you are wealthy. I don't care how much money you have in your bank account right now. If you have a house over your head, you are wealthy. Mark 10, 23, the rich young ruler comes and says, what can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells him, sell everything he has. Follow me. He walks away discouraged. Jesus says this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God because they don't see their need. We don't see our need sometimes. We have wealth that weighs us down. Revelation 3.17, Jesus is is communicating this to John. He's revealing this to John, and he's telling him about the the church of Thessalonica, and he said, or Laodicea, I'm sorry, in uh, Revelation 3.17, he says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. How much more need could a person be in than that? But they think they're rich. They think they have it all. They think they have everything that they need. And what Jesus is saying, he says, but you have nothing. Church, we can perceive that we have everything and be absolutely bankrupt and without, if it's without the Lord. 
And so first we have to understand our need. And so how do we go about giving God more of ourselves and taking in more of Him? The first way we do it, and these things aren't earth-shattering, but I pray that you'll hear them. The first thing we do is one way that we seek Him is in the local gathering, is in the local church, is the gathering of believers. The argument, I don't have to be at church to worship God or be a Christian. That's true. But I also don't need Valentine's Day to remind me that I love my wife. I don't need her birthday to be thankful for the fact that she's alive. I don't need our anniversary to be thankful that she decided to spend her life with me. But they're great reminders, right? They're a great opportunity to be purposeful and love her and show concern for her and, and, and just be glad that I'm with her and that she exists. The local church, the gathering of, the, of believers, you can find a hundred thousand better things to do than be in this hot, this hot cafeteria and worship God. But there's no greater thing that is worth our time than this. There is no greater thing than this. It is a great opportunity to acknowledge our need and to rel- just, just enjoy and be mindful of His worth. This place reminds us of our need and reminds us of His worth. That's why we need to be here. We have to be here. We need this. The second thing, not only the local gathering, but to be in His Word. To be in the Bible. And the argument is, well, I don't get anything out of it. I don't understand it when I read it. One thing is, if you're not digesting it, it's probably because you're feasting on other things and you don't have room for it. You're being satisfied by other things, like we were talking about earlier. And you're saying, well, I just don't feel I just don't want it. I don't, I don't just don't have that, that, that encouragement in me. I don't have that desire. I don't have that discipline. My encouragement for you would be don't wait for the want. Don't wait for the want. Pour yourself into it. We think about anything that our kids eat. If I left it up to my kids, well, I don't want vegetables. Well, the vegetables are good for you. Well, I don't want it. Well, just try it. A little bit. Three bites. I mean, we'll, we'll negotiate all the time. Dude, just two bites. Just two bites of food. Just two bites of your broccoli. Just six bites. Just ten bites. Church, don't wait for the want because in the flesh you'll never want it. You'll never want it. And you can't approach the Bible. You can't approach a worship service. You can't approach the preaching. You can't approach fellowship with believers with a debit card approach. That I get into it, I swipe it, and I immediately get something from it. That I, come, that I get into my Bible and I swipe it and it just blows my mind with this unbelievable, life-changing truth. That I come into worship every Sunday and it's just, oh gosh, it's just crazy. I'm just excited. I just got so much from it. My life is going to be a million times different from the moment I walk out of it. If we approach engaging with God like a debit card, we will come up empty sometimes. Listen, church, we have to approach it like a deposit and not a debit that we're pouring into it, that we're pouring into it, that we're giving of ourselves into it. I'm giving you my devotion, God, in your word. I'm giving you my devotion in being in my local gathering on Sunday morning. I'm giving you my devotion as I worship, as I pray, as I instruct my children, as I love my wife, as I do all these things that you've called me to do, God. I'm depositing, I'm depositing, I'm depositing with the hopes that in my deposits I will reap rewards, that I will reap the benefits and the gains of my deposits. That's what God calls us to do, is He calls us to deposit. He calls us to give. We want to experience biblical awe without biblical devotion. God calls us to devotion. 
Proverbs 23.12, Apply your heart to the instruction and your ear to the words of knowledge. Through this revelation, the word revelation means revealed word, through God's revelation in this book, He speaks a truth to us. He encourages us. The Bible says it's active and living. This book is the only book that reads you while you read it. It speaks to you. Wherever you're at, it will speak to you. It will encourage you. It will instruct you in whatever place you're at in life. We desperately need it. So not only do we seek Him, not only do we put ourselves in a place like she did to see Him and to engage with Him, but then we also believe Him, that she had faith in Him. She believed He could do what she needed. And even though her faith was weak, timid, and superstitious, right? Because she thought, well, if I just touch his clothes, then I'd be healed. You know, and that did happen other times in the Bible, but it wasn't because of the power of the clothes or the rag or the shadows, as Peter's situation in Acts. It wasn't because of those things that people were healed. It was because they had the faith in the God that could heal through those things. It wasn't because of the apostles' hands that people were healed. It was because of God that they were healed. And they had faith in God so that they were healed. She believed that God could do it. Even though her her faith was weak and it was timid and it was misguided, God blessed her weak faith. God will bless your weak faith even if you don't understand it or don't, don't really grasp it. He says, bring it. Approach me with it. Give it to me. I will make much of the little that you have. Believe Him. 1 Chronicles 16 11, Seek the Lord in His strength. Seek His presence continually. Seeking Him, believing that He can do it in church. The last thing is receive Him. Because there is a big difference between believing something and receiving something. Listen, because she received something because she touched Him. But what does the Bible say there? It says there were many people touching Him. There were many people around him. There were tons of people. She had to push through the crowd to even get to Jesus. And they they were there because they believed he could do things. They believed that he had the power to heal because they'd heard about it. But she was the only one that approached him with the heart to receive what he had. Desperately in need for the power that was in Jesus. And that's why, you know, when we pray that, we pray for soft hearts and open minds. I'm not just repeating some phrase. I truly do pray that as you come, I could say the most profound things that you've ever heard, that your ears have ever, ever listened to. But if your heart's not ready to receive it, it's like falling on deaf ears. It's just, it's just noise. We have to be at a place where we come believing that He can do it and receiving what He has for us. John 1.12 says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And what I love about this nameless woman, earlier in this, in this chapter, or right before this, it talks about a man named Jairus who was a rich man who had a daughter who was dying and he had went to Jesus. He, he, he believed, he received what Jesus had for him and it said his name. He was rich. You know, I don't know why it said his name particularly, but he was well known. And what is it called? The woman? It just calls her the woman. She has no name. She has nobody. It doesn't say she had family around her that was encouraging her. Come on, let's go see Jesus so he can make you better. She had nobody. She was nobody. And what does Jesus call her the moment that she's healed? He calls her daughter. Because she believed and she received, she was now a child of God's. No one else had known her. No one else had cared for her. But now she was a child of God's because she believed and received. She had a place in the family of God. She was in Christ because she believed Him. 
And she received what he had because she acknowledged her need. What did she do? She was in submission. She was in confession. And she was in profession of who he was publicly. What does it say there in verse 33? It says, But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell before him and told him the whole truth. She said everything. I I wish I would have been there. She was saying, Jesus, I'm dirty. I'm filthy. Nobody will touch me. Nobody will be around me. Nobody will let me into the temples. Nobody will let me worship you. Nobody will let me do anything. I can't clean myself. I've given all my money. The Bible says she gave everything. I've poured everything out and nothing's made me better. I've actually suffered under physicians that tried to heal me. I need more and I need you. I hear that you can do it, Jesus, and I need it. What does it say? It says that he looked for her. You know, and we have to remember when the Bible was written, the Bible was written from an observer's perception. So when it says things, sometimes we can believe that maybe Jesus was surprised or Jesus was caught off guard. Jesus knew who had touched him. Jesus knew that she was there. Jesus knew that power had gone out from him. This is the only time in the Bible where it says that he felt power go out from him. He knew what had happened. He called out to her. He called out to her. He knew exactly where she was and who she was. He sought after her. He called after, out to her. And what did she do? She fell at his feet in respect and fear and trembling and told everything in front of everybody. She wasn't ashamed. You healed me. You did for me. You provided for me when no one else could. Church, God calls us to a place of submission of confession and public proclamation. That's why we do baptisms. That's why we say, man, if you've received Christ as your Savior and put your faith in His saving work, let's make it known to people. Let's let people know what He's done. I thank Jacob for having the boldness to go years into the church setting and do church things, work as a church pastor, a youth pastor, and have the courage to say, I did all those things in my own strength, in my own work, in my own filthy righteousness, but now everything I do from this moment on is in the righteousness of Jesus in His work and in His healing. C.S. Lewis said this as I close. And Landon, you can come up and we'll start landing this plane because I can talk all day on this. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Church, what we do here week after week and what we do in His Word and what we do in fellowship and what we do in worship is cannot be moderately important. It's either the most important thing that we do in our entire life or it's, the, it's nothing. It's a waste of your time. It can't be middle ground. It is not moderately important. Nothing is valuable and as heavy as the eternal life of an individual in the saving work of Jesus Christ. It can't just be moderately important. And next week we'll talk about how that looks in loving our neighbor and communicating that to the people around us. But it cannot be moderately important. Judas Iscariot experienced every sermon, every miracle, every work of God. He worked for Jesus. He carried the money for the people. Jesus trusted him. But Jesus also knew who he really was in his heart. And the reason was, is because Judas had given himself over to lesser things, sold Jesus out for a few shekels of silver. He was deprived, he was deficient, and he found his satisfaction in anything but Jesus. And to the point where his life ended and he knew where it hit him. I just gave up on the most valuable, most important thing in the entire world. For money. 
for lesser things, for things that will not and cannot satisfy me. You know, there was some some trouble uh, recently going around where Target was using their Target app, and maybe y'all fallen victim to this or you've seen it, where Target was using their Target app and they were communicating prices for certain things. And these prices were sell prices, right? They look like, man, that's a great price on that, whatever that was. This is a great price on that. And so they would look at their app and they would all they'd have to do is go to the store and get this thing that they see on sale that I desperately need. And so what would happen, what people were complaining about is that they would see this price on their app and the moment that they walked into the store and they checked the app again, that price had changed. It was more expensive now. But what most people were doing when they would get in there, they'd say, well, I'm here now, so I'll just buy it. They came in thinking what they were looking for was going to cost them less than it actually did. It ended up costing them more. You know, and maybe that doesn't make a big deal. Maybe I pay a couple extra bucks for coffee now, and, you know, it'll be okay. Then I do that again. Then I do that again. Then I do that again. And then I do that again. And it's going to end up costing me substantially more than I would have ever had to pay for it. Church, the enemy draws us in with things that he tells us this isn't going to cost you much. This isn't going to, it's going to make you happy. It's going to make you feel great. It's going to make you feel like you have purpose. It's going to make you feel like that, that your life is all together. It's gonna, it's gonna satisfy you. It's not gonna cost you much. And then when you get there, when you start to indulge in those things that the enemy puts before us, the sin and the struggle and the selfishness that he puts before us, we start to indulge in those things. What we start to see is, oh gosh, this is costing me way more than I ever thought it was. This is costing me my family. This is costing me my job. This is costing me my devotion to Jesus because it's absorbing every bit of who I am. Sin is always at a high cost. Selfishness and, and selfish desire is always at a high cost. And it's the result of hunger. It's a result of the fact that we're not delighting and loving God more, taking in more of who He is and living for more of what He deserves. You know, in my line of work, lack of hunger is a result of two things. So maybe you're here this morning and you say, I, don't, I just don't hunger for him that way. I don't hunger for Jesus like that. I don't, I don't want Jesus like that. I don't want to be here and worship. I don't want to sing. I don't want to pray. I don't want to uh, I don't, I don't read the Bible. I don't want to do any of those things. In my line of work, hunger is a, is a, is a picture or a, a precursor to two things or a result of two things. The first thing is sickness. You know, if you're sick, your body's not functioning properly. It's not letting you know I'm hungry. I'm hungry because it's dealing with other things. But as you're neglecting to eat, your body is slowly dying. Your body is slowly deteriorating a little bit. But it can be fixed. You just need something to stimulate that appetite, even, even though you're not sensing it. You need something to tell you that you're hungry, something artificially to tell you you're hungry until you get over this sickness. Then the second thing, the second evidence, the second potential cause of this lack of hunger is impending death. And the patients I deal with, the people I deal with, the closer that they are to death, the less they eat. They don't even, they, they, their appetite has changed. They, they don't want anything. And they're wasting away without an ounce of hunger. So what's the solution for that? 
can't do anything about that. Solution's new life, new heart, new body. So for us, church, maybe you're here this morning and you're not hungering for God. You're not desiring more of God and to give Him more of yourself. You may be sick. And I pray, like we talked about earlier, you would not wait for the want, that you would push yourself to be obedient to Him if you're a believer this morning. That you would take in more of Him. You would stimulate, stimulate your appetite. Be here. Allow us to stimulate your appetite. Have spiritual conversations with people around you to stimulate your appetite. Get, be in His revealed Word to stimulate your appetite. And the second thing, if you're dying here, if you've never put your faith in Christ, you're dying. And that's why you're not hungry. That's why you don't want Him. That's why you don't desire Him. What's the solution for that? The Bible says that if we'll confess believe that he'll save us he'll give us a new life he'll give us a new heart he'll give us and make us a new creation where that death is not imminent anymore that that death is not our end goal that that death is not our end result he says he will provide new life for us if we'll just believe him and receive him recognizing our need and believing he can do what he needs to do Christ, I trust that you will forgive me of my sins. Christ, I trust that you will save me and you will provide a way for me that your sacrifice on the cross is enough for me, that Jesus is enough for me, even if my life suffers, that Christ is enough. That I don't need his blessings, I just want the blesser. I don't need the healing, I just want the healer. Give me those things. For us and for that person that needs new life, that you would believe, receive, and proclaim it publicly. Celebrate. If you need him, celebrate.